You are listening to the TF Cast, a Mankato-based arts and culture podcast where we hear stories of upcoming projects and get to know the people making things happen all across southern Minnesota. Yeah, and recording a video in three, two. Hello and welcome to another episode of the TF Cast. Today is September 29th, 2021. Today with us, we have Shelly Caldwell. Um, she's here to talk about her installation at the Carnegie Arts Center, opening on the 7th with the reception of not on the 9th of October. Shelly, uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the installation. Hi. Yeah. As you said, I'm Shelly Caldwell, and I'm a local artist kind of associated with the Mankato community, and I have an exhibition at the Carnegie that... F- features two-dimensional work as well as a site-specific installation in the fireplace gallery. Um, and uh, when did you when did you set this up? Are you working on that right now? I actually just finished setting up the installation portion of it yesterday, and the Carnegie takes care of the two-dimensional work, so a little okay. bit of extra work off my plate. So you're hanging stuff. Uh, I, we, we saw some photos. I think maybe now is when we would show those if, if we had them available. We're gonna add them in post. Okay, cool. So we'll add some of those in. People okay. will be able to see. Um, there's a lot of hanging stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired this project? Yeah, my installations are usually kind of a progression of whatever materials I have a lot of around me. Um, as a discipline in the arts field, installation is not media specific like painting or drawing or printmaking might be. Uh, it is usually characterized by a few things such as things that you can accumulate a lot of because when you have anything in mass, it starts to take on sort of a different appearance and has a different effect on the audience that might be in the space with Mm. um, those components. And the spatial aspect is typically another portion of it that distinguishes it from sculpture alone um, because installation is usually very specific to the site in which the work is situated in. So even though the components I'm using in this installation may or may not, depending on which ones we're talking about, have been used in the past. It's always a unique experience depending on um, the site that it's situated in. So Mm. I took the shape of like the windows and some other architectural features of Mm. the Carnegie to help direct this work, so to speak. Did you like uh, the combination of of kind of finding how it worked with the spaces? It, was that new or is that typical when you do installs where the space has a big impact on it? The space always has a pretty big impact on yeah. it. So um, typically I've worked regionally enough that I have that opportunity to, you know, go do a site visit ahead of time, get a lot of photos, spend some time in the space so that mm-hmm. you can see not only what it's like, but you can feel what a space is like. Mm-hmm. Um, so in certain ways it is related a little bit to the architecture just as much as any other consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always a big portion of the planning process to figure out where, what, and how you're going to execute mm. um, whatever it is that you're doing. It, it, it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, kind of like, I was a little bit surprised when you sent the photos over because a lot of the other stuff that I've seen from you, which is mostly on your website, is this really like bright green kind of like sunny and transparent and use of light. And then I saw this and it was, I mean, it, it felt more almost in dust. It, it, it seemed to be coming forth from the fireplace, like as it, as it would with the consideration to the space, like you're talking about was, was that like, were, were those objects something that you just had on hand or did you have to 
gather them from your source of objects? Like, how do you source these things and what are they? Uh, with this particular installation, it's kind of a progression of a few different ideas. Um, the scrap pieces, that is what I call them at least, because they're a bunch of just black scrap paper pieces from components that are completely different from older installations that I've made. Um, mm. But in making those cut paper components, which were basically really large silhouettes of a spider plant, you had all these negative space or negative shape pieces left over. Um, mm. So I just threw them in a box and have had them sitting around ever since. Um, and just like the two-dimensional work in the show, a lot of my plant work, at least when I make works on paper, have to do with not necessarily just drawing the plant from observation, but drawing the plant silhouette and then looking at how much identity is actually available within just the silhouette of uh, any subject, really. Um, so there's automatically that sort of darkness factor built in conceptually, at least, because you're looking at just an outline in the space that fills mm. the inside of it. Mm. So it was just a really so to speak, lucky happenstance that I had all these leftover scraps from older projects that I had worked into the current components that they're in for a different show this spring. Um, so with that one, it was a similar consideration. Um, it wasn't a fireplace, but that gallery had a black ceiling and then a lot of like mm. grays or sort of metallic surfaces around it or a lot of windows that reflected a lot of light. So there were all automatically these formal crossovers that related to these scraps that I had. And so I've been finding different ways to apply them um, since making those this spring. Hmm. That, that's interesting that there was a little bit of a tie in between the 2D work and then the like 3D installation work. When, when you're approaching projects that are either 2 or 3D, do you have different motivations or like a different reasoning behind approaching the work? Um, it's kind of a broad question, but you know what I mean? Um, both yes and no. So I, I think most makers of any kind can relate to that notion where you would get pretty burnt out if you only did the same thing all the time. Mm. Um, so I've always had a lot of interest in line and color um, and graphic shapes in general and making completely non-objective abstract art that doesn't have any sort of content or subject matter that's overtly explicit or, you know, real obvious in it. Um, but then I do also do a lot of work about nature or specifically plants over the last few years. So it's usually kind of working with both how different those things are, but then also finding those areas of overlap and how they can still be different things that help me not get too burnt out on making any one thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then I can also continue to progress the ideas that I have over time without staying just down one avenue. So I kind of think of things as being pretty cyclical in my studio. I'll usually make a series of representational works that have some components of abstraction in them. And then with whatever leftovers I have from either that or former projects, I'll pull pieces out and decide what sort of non-objective work I can make, especially an installation, because then people start to insert their own experiences on the shapes that they're seeing or the movement or different aspects of the work. What, what have been on some of the inspirations behind this time around the cycle? Um, this time around, it really has been because I work with nature anyway, um, as a subject matter, it's very cyclical. So it's automatically somewhat seasonal in my mind. Mm. Um, but I had 
made the large series that the installation is shown with the previous year. And it was by far the largest series I had ever done. And I was really, really burnt out on it. And I had used a handful of these scraps in some of the later works of the series just to add a collage element to make them a little bit different and to fill those surfaces in a different way. Um, so then having dug those scraps back out, it really did motivate me to finally sit down and figure out a solution to turn them into an installation that I was happy with. Hmm. Is there like a, is there real emotional energy that, that goes with like pieces of old artwork? Like when you pull that out, does, does it have weight to it? Um, I wouldn't say it's emotional so much as it is just satisfying to know that you're not really wasting any materials. I think, you know, as a maker, you see the value and just the expense of what you paid for your materials. Mm. But then there is also that notion of not creating excess waste or not just throwing things out when you're done with it and holding on to them and letting them sit and stew for a while, even if it is in a box in the corner of your studio for a couple <laughs> of years. Um, just to know that you're not wasting feels pretty validating, I guess, in my experience. Mm. And I suppose also just growing up in a rural background and pretty immersed in the outdoors in general, not necessarily just nature, but all aspects. It's um, that notion of knowing how far you have to go or what hoops you have to jump through to attain anything. Um, Cause you can't mm. just run to the store to get what you want on a whim. Um, mm. You can because you're mobile and you have a car, but when driving to the store is a 30 mile endeavor rather than a two mile endeavor, you start to quantify things a little bit differently or think about even the gas that goes <laughs> into acquiring what it is you need to do what you do. So I like that notion that it's kind of saving me some time and effort as well of going mm. out and sourcing things that I don't even necessarily need. You've mentioned a few times your kind of a connection to nature and now your, your rural background. Could you contextualize that for the audience a little yeah, bit? Um, um, I'm connected to from art? this area originally, but I live about 30 miles south of town on what was my grandparents' farm. So hmm. I grew up on an operational grain farm. Um, so that was always in the background of my life. And my mom is a big gardener, so plants in general, but also that aspect of work and sort of feeding and sustaining yourself um, is always kicking around in the back of my mind. So that definitely has some overflow into my work and I guess my life in general. Hmm. What, uh, is it, was that a good place to spend the last uh, year or two here with the chaos of all that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, it was nice to get away from it when I was 18 and ready to move on and do something else. And yeah. I moved around the state a little bit and did a lot of different things over the years until I ultimately went back to school and went to first Ridgewater and Hutchinson and then finished my undergrad here at MSU and did the graduate program as well. Mm -hmm. um, so once I finished undergrad, um, my grandma had passed away and no one was living on the farm. And the house I grew up in had a similar situation and um, old houses in the country don't fare so well uninhabited for mm. a large variety of reasons. So it's within a driving distance that it made sense for me to be there. And instead of paying rent, put that money in my gas tank to drive to town when I was in the mm. graduate program and working other jobs in Mankato. So the space that is available there for me to just work mm. and 
have at my disposal is very handy. And that isolation of being able to be alone and kind of be left alone because people have to seek you out pretty hard or they have to go pretty yeah. far out of their way to come to me. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is nice to know that, okay, today is going to be a day where I'm at home, I'm left alone, I can accomplish blank. Whereas mm. other days I can much more intentionally plan, okay, I'm going to Mankato today. I'm going to do these mm. 10 or 20 things while I'm there. So it really helps my overall workflow as well as just inspire the work in general too. Mm. Sounds like it would add some, add some nice focus to your, your practice yeah. and in space for crafting big installations. Yeah, too. for sure. For <laughs> sure. Are, are installations that are, are this size, do you, do you plan them and build them and then reinstall them or do you plan them and then build them and install them all in one place? I kind of plan them and hope for the best because I even though I have the space, I don't necessarily have the large amount of free space that any gallery mm. might have, um, especially seasonally, like in the wintertime. In the summertime, I could maybe go out to one of the larger outbuildings and at least test a few components and see how they might work out. Um, so it kind of depends on the time of the year. Mm. But for the most part, I will make a component or two and play with it on a smaller scale within the confines of my studio. And then if I like the way it's playing out, I will usually make until I run out of what it is I had as a stockpile, and then I can mm. decide if that's enough or if I need to source more. Um, but then another big consideration is how am I going to move it? So there's a lot of logistics and planning involved in how to get it from my studio, even with any spa amount of space mm. I have, ultimately to the gallery. How did you get started with the uh, installations? I kind of recognize that as a step beyond maybe the 2D in the gallery shows. So. It was kind of um, fortuitous timing, I suppose you could say. When I yeah. was in my last year of undergrad at MSU here in Mankato, I was going for drawing and painting. And mm. the drawing faculty here um, approaches drawing in a very experimental, very modern way. Mm. And she's also an installation artist, so mm. that had a lot of influence on it. Um, but then installation also became a discipline in MSU's art department during that year. So once okay. I knew I was staying on for the graduate program, it was up to you to decide what mm. studio you wanted to focus your efforts in. So even though I was still doing a lot of drawing, my MA is in installation as opposed to drawing. So for okay. those two years, I was pretty explicitly focusing mm. on how to develop installations and make them feasible as well as the drawings still. And what, what kind of work were you producing then? Was it, um, it, was it anything like what you're doing today? Um, it's similar to some of the other installations that you might see on my website. A lot of people know me as the spider plant lady, um, simply because that's another material that when I was studying installation, you can accumulate a lot of pretty quickly for pretty cheap, if not free. <laughs> um, so a lot of those earlier installations involved whatever I could find around me on the farm. Um, so the plants were one of those things, but it being my grandparents' house formerly, there was a lot of stuff there for me to draw from. Hmm. Um, and my grandpa was kind of this compulsive office supply purchaser. So there was <laughs> just this huge stack of legal pads. So that's where some of that more transparent work came from. I already had all this paper to work with. And if you want to make work on a large scale, big rolls of paper cost a lot of money. <laughs> so I was coming up with ways to, you know, attach smaller sheets in different ways to ultimately create larger surfaces. Um, so it's really always been about 
just looking around me and seeing what there's a whole lot of. And then also, even if I exhaust the supply, would it still be easy for me to acquire more? So mm. that's a pretty common thread when I'm developing any installation work. The spider plants thing, I want to, did, so did you install a room full of spider plants in MSU a couple of years ago? Yeah, I had, for my thesis show, I had yeah. the Conkling Gallery and the, kind of the entrance of the gallery was basically nearly blocked by just this big yeah. wall of spider plants that and I And you could made. go grab one yes. at some yep. point. I did that and I have the spider plants. That's still, awesome. And I didn't know it was yours. So yeah, I actually cool. don't get that quite often and it's like super <laughs> satisfying to me to know that, yeah. you know, it's not only spread, but that, you know, it's spreading life and something positive. It's not just more like junk in the world. It's yeah. something that you get to interact with on your mundane daily routine and something that yeah. brightens the background of our environment. So um, installation art, uh, I guess one of those other big things that divine, defines it is usually that it's creating some sort of experience for mm. your audience. And we might refer to them as audience members more than viewers because you might mm. be allowed to actually interact with the work in a certain way. So it starts to tear down that viewer object relationship and having that perceived barrier between you and the work mm -hmm. and then you actually being able to act on the work um, so for me it fulfills a lot of purposes of you know marketing myself a little bit because people will remember those things and go oh mm. hey i got this plant from somewhere i should figure out where that was or have i seen this person's work before yeah. um, but it also fulfills really just that need to empty my studio at a certain point because mm. any plant people know that they grow and they multiply. <laughs> and if you keep them all, like, what are you going to do with those? So yeah. it helps me unburden myself and get rid of them all for a while. But then new opportunities come up to do it again, or I get requests mm. to do that work or work with those plants. So it, it helps sort of mm. refuel that cycle as well. The creative recycling in a way, especially when you get into the organic creative recycling projects, I'm sure. It's right. A, it's a cool way of doing it. Yeah, I like that idea too that, you know, I'm giving away a piece of the work. It helps to unburden me to a certain point, but mm -hmm. then it's also not just putting more junk out into the world. It can either be, you know, that thing that you have a sort of relationship with in your home. Um, but I also refer to it as a really low pressure pet um, <laughs> because if it dies, it's clearly not that big of a deal. You can, you can always get more. Mm -hmm. um, or there's like a Mankato area plant people group on Facebook group. and people yeah. are constantly posting, especially, you know, spider plant pups that they're like, <laughs> looking for new homes for. Yeah. That's neat. Uh, what, what other uh, interesting ways have you combined plants and organic material into your, your works? Um, I've done different things with the actual plants in the past, um, not in recent past, but I've used mm. like dried or dead plant material in collage work before. Mm. Um, I do often use it as, over the last few years, just my primary source material when I work representationally, um, simply because it's an easy sitter. They don't move. They stay where you put them for the mm -hmm. most part and you can sit with it and observe it as long as you'd like. Um, mm -hmm. And then it does help bring me back around that cycle of when I am burning out on the installation work and making a lot of components and I want to just sit down and make a drawing again. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of 
material right there at my fingertips. Um, I also like to hike a lot, so it is nice to go out and see what's seasonal and what you can draw from. Um, and then after a while with like a lot of the 2D work I do, it starts to become a bit of a survey of what grows here, there, wherever I've been. So the work Ooh. in this show um, was all started on a residency outside of Ely during the summer of 2019. So um, that was just the basically reason to go on a two-week vacation at a residency up north. But I went Ooh. with a lot of paper and I took plant silhouettes until I ran out of paper and that fueled the mm. work that ultimately resulted in this show. So that's real okay so that's really neat um i'm thinking about i think your 2d works where it's it's the silhouette and it the colors on the outside mm -hmm. are wild and mm -hmm. uh, kind of abstract and then uh, do you do uh like pen or line work inside to yep. inside the silhouette i do that's a, it's a really it's a really neat pairing and combination for anyone who hasn't seen it i would encourage you to check it out thank um, you what what uh what's the reason for silhouetting like that or like uh what what draws you to continue creating in that way um the one thing i feel at least in my mind my installations and my 2d work have in common the most is the really strong linear quality um, mm. even though i like to draw realistically or representationally um, i really like that hard edge and i also like the permanence of pen and the fact that you can't go back mm. um, because anybody that knows me and my work a little bit um, knows that i do get real tedious and i am a bit of a perfectionist so these silhouette works really came out of how to embrace a lot of the criticism I got in undergrad and graduate school mm. um, because I had all that traditional skill set, but the biggest feedback was always like, Shelly, we want to see you make a mess or what mm. happens if you don't have control. So I experimented with a lot of different ways to try to incorporate that feedback and a lot of them failed. Um, but ultimately I realized I needed to start with something realistic. So in my mind, these silhouettes at the outset were something simple and quick because none of my work is simple and quick. Mm. Um, and I thought, okay, I can just take a plant silhouette. I can fill the inside with a masking agent and then I can play with color and spontaneous mark making in the background, which mm. is still what these works in, uh, really are. But then the next step in the process is once I'm happy with that background color aspect and the mark making that's happening there, I peel off the masking agent from the silhouette portion. And even though that is a really nice contrast and I like the graphic shape, it just doesn't feel done for me until I go back in and get a little bit tedious with it. So that's where mm. you see that finishing um, line work, maybe some time pattern or stippling come into play. Okay, that's neat. I, I've, I've seen I've seen your work around, I think at the wine cafe was mm -hmm. one of the spots you had installed for a while. and. Um, very nice to look at and yeah the silhouetting with uh, it, it, it reminds me of like a, a way of showing contrast that just just maybe between like black and white and colorful um and then your the edges mm -hmm. it's cool thank you <laughs> uh, I, I had i had one question that I, I just wanted to get off that is um and some of the things that you've, you've talked about, about being um, tedious and like maybe even photorealistic or something in that case, and, and also like being a little bit of a naturalist, is, is, that, is that 
that's like a that's like a, a thing in art history that I don't know and uh, also like stuff like uh, naturalists like they would go out with sketchbooks and do this thing that's how like things were originally cataloged right was, mm-hmm. was that thought of as fine art and is that something that you draw from personally I've always been you know fascinated with those things or I collect a lot of different like field manuals or reference books um, for not just plants but really anything Mm -hmm. because I like that sort of research aspect involved or getting to understand the nuances between this plant or that plant or this bird and that bird Um, but I always really admired those as a kid um, in the artistic quality that went into them so you know like the Audubon birds are probably the most Mm well-known version of that but it's actually still a really strange niche job that exists like on a government level, um, uh, on like a federal government level where they still pay certain artists to tediously sit down and draw from observation Hmm. any given specimen. Um, But that's, you know, increasingly scant because we have so many other technological advancements that do that work, that catalog it by photograph or scans or other, Hmm. other ways of cataloging it. But there's still something about that process of the way we see it or the way we translate it to paper um, that I think is somewhat inherent because like we're still paying people to do this job, even though we have the technology to eliminate the job. Hmm. So I like to think of that as, you know, being part of what, initially maybe inspired me to keep drawing as a kid um, just Mm. because I was always really impressed by the amount of skill it takes to not just translate something to paper but especially in just black and white Um, when you eliminate color or a gradient of shading um, it takes away a lot of considerations but then it also sort of ups the level of challenge of the work how like what to include and what not to include to Mm. still make it visible and realistic so to speak. Well, I, from from the from my perspective as a, a birder who's not much of an artist, like seeing that kind of uh, seeing that kind of representation of what would be a singular bird on paper, but it's also representative of its class. Like from a photograph, that can also that can often be really difficult. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I've always kind of had like some, like I, I wonder like what goes into those images, like making it be representative of a class, but also as an individual, because it's used for identification mm-hmm. normally, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really interesting to hear you remark upon that. Um, do, you su- do you suppose it's like a consistent, uh, almost for like consistent framing of the image and then colors uh, so that when you're, when you're using it as reference, you can observe it well, rather than it being a set of images that kind of confuse things? Because I've thought about that too a little bit, but... Kind of, I mean, like oftentimes uh, when you're identifying birds, you do like flight patterns or wing tips or like crowns or things like that. Yeah. Um, so like the image might not be perfect, but there's also like all the plumages throughout the season. Mm-hmm. So like you, you need, you would need to have someone who's observed that animal over and over and over again, mm. draw what would likely be the most representative of that one and then not have bird nerds argue about it <laughs> like if you just put an image of a bird out like you're gonna get some people with opinions <laughs> for sure interesting most of them are gonna there's only one right one probably <laughs> it's not mine i can't identify anything <laughs> but uh yeah I, that, that's kind of my naturalist question there um mm. 
I, I don't I don't have any more. What what uh what do you what do you got in the works for uh, future projects? You got anything you're excited about right now? Um, yeah, actually, I'm really mostly just excited um, to be able to get a little centralized focus back in my studio. Um, last year, I received a state arts board grant, and it was for a variety of things like getting a new website and getting a better camera and a lot of sort of nuts and bolts things for my studio. But even though it wasn't specifically a project grant, it is still a project grant because I got a lot of supplies to mm. um, do a work, a series of work that's related but different. So it really came from somebody else's idea, um, someone local that I know took a picture of a plant silhouette on the wall in their house one day mm. and sent it to me and said, hey, I just caught this plant shadow on my wall at home and it reminded me of your work. Mm. And you know, I was kind of flattered by that and thought it was just a nice way to remain connected with people. Um, but then because of the pandemic, last year's grant cycle through the State Arts Board was really geared more toward how are you connecting to and maintaining connections in your community. Mm. So for this project, I'm actually sourcing photos like the one I was sent from mm. anyone who wants to send them to me um, so that it kind of takes my control out of the composition a little bit and I can still translate the shadow that they're seeing, but then I can translate other aspects like pattern and color and um, traces of that sort of domestic environment, even though the humans removed from it, we mm. still know that it's like likely somebody's home and somebody's private space. Um, mm. So it was really a way to maintain the connections amongst that plant community that stays mm. pretty well connected anyway. Um, but then it kind of helps put a different variable on my work and let me do something that's related but different. So these will be mm. a series of like cut paper works with some pattern and drawing elements included. Mm. Are you still accepting those? Yes, definitely. So people can send them to me any way they'd like. I'm pretty easy to find on Facebook or they can email them to me, shoot me a text, whatever. Well, let's do that for plugs. Uh, would they just search your name for Facebook and yep. things like that? Yep. Cool. All right. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, it's, it's fun to get community involvement on a project mm -hmm. like that. I'm sure it'll be a fun one to uh, see as it develops. Yeah, definitely. So we'll ask people to keep an eye out on uh, for that and then uh, go check out the opening reception for your show this yeah. uh, the 9th, right? Yes, yeah, Saturday the 9th from mm -hmm. 7 to 9. Cool. At the, the Carnegie mm -hmm. Art Center. Art Center? Yep. Nice. All right. Well, hey, thank you for joining us on the podcast. You got any uh, final words or shout outs? Or? No, thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Right on. Thanks for tuning in. You can find show notes for this and every episode at triplefalls.org.